0: afternoon from KALX in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show.
1: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
0: Coming up on today's show, coral reefs and inverting spheres.
1: In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Jake Page, who will talk about female anthropology.
0: Also, we'll find out what an MP problem is.
1: So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Groks Science Show.
0: Congrats, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of YouTube.
0: Belongs to Google now, right?
1: <laughs> okay, I guess I'm not then. Uh, maybe I should try and take over Google. I don't think that's going to be easy, though.
0: <laughs> Their market cap's, like, what, $100 billion?
1: It's overvalued.
0: <laughs> so you're not the voice of a sea cucumber this week, huh?
1: Well, you know, I wanted to be a voice of sea cucumber. <laughs> I mean, they have a pretty good life, right? Filter feeding?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and turn themselves inside out, and never uh, they get attacked. Yeah. Turns out, Professor Here, who was at Berkeley Emeritus, has proved that a sphere can be turned inside out without breaking it or even leaving a crease.
1: Now, this is a rigid metal sphere or what?
0: I guess he's demonstrated with a film, but sort of a, you know abstract mathematical proof that it could be done. Okay. And for this, he was awarded the Wolf Prize earlier this year. It belongs to a Stephen Smale, who's also a Fields Medalist, and he is actually currently at the Toyota Technological Institute in Chicago.
1: It's a, it's a very fine mathematical institute, the University of Chicago, in fact. Another
0: fine UC. <laughs> so he has a very illustrious career in mathematics, and he has some very interesting stories about his experience as a researcher. Back in the days when he was working on the Poincaré Conjecture, the NSF actually tried to yank his grants. and He was actually doing it when he was on the beaches of Rio, (laughs) but uh, I guess NSF was smart enough to realize that uh, he was too valuable and uh, he let him keep his grant and in fact they're still paying for him.
1: Well, you know, I don't see why you're constrained to doing your mathematical proofs at any particular location. Right. Inspiration comes from the beaches of Rio just as easily as the favelas of Rio.
0: (laughs) We should go there sometime.
1: <laughs> Have a good choice, Korea.
0: Oh. Anyways, he is going to get $100,000 for the Wolf Prize, and his co-winner is Harry Furstenberg from Hebrew University.
1: It's very fascinating. I've always wanted to turn my golf balls inside out, because they never fly quite as far as I want them to. So <laughs>
0: Put more dimples, man. <laughs>
1: Need more non-laminar flow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is uh, very good stuff for mathematics, and we're very happy for Professor Smale.
1: Congratulations. I wish we had the resources to give out awards like that. I don't think anybody would accept it, even if we did. (laughs) Just a hundred thousand. (laughs) Yeah. We should start at a Grok Award.
0: Oh my gosh, it's a non profit.
1: First of all, you have to have cash flow in order to even be considering profit or non profit status.
0: 51C3. <laughs>
1: so, even though that story didn't actually have to do with sea gummers, here's a story that actually deals with life under the sea. In fact, sea corals. They're dying, right? Well, yeah, that's the big concern. Help me. <laughs> and it's all because we're raising the global temperature.
0: Damn glaciers. <laughs> if they only didn't betray us.
1: <laughs> or at least uh, raising the CO2 levels that are causing it.
0: <laughs> so, this got to say.
1: Yeah. CO2 levels increase the acidity of the oceans when they're dissolved, right. creating carbonic acid. Right. And that dissolves the coral skin, essentially, the it's calcium like carbonate. like
0: Coke to the ocean. <laughs> I like Coke, by the way.
1: It's good with Mentos, too. Uh, or is that Diet Coke? I can't quite recall. but It sinks. <laughs> so it turns out that there's been a bit concern because coral reefs obviously support massive fish communities in the oceans. Right. And pharmaceutical companies are also interested because it's useful for drug development. Okay. Now, researchers were wondering just exactly how robust are these corals to losing their calcium carbonate shell? And what they did is they got a sample of reefs from a major reef building group called the actinian corals from the Red Sea, put them in the lab, bubbled CO2 into the tank water, dissolved mm-hmm. calcium carbonate, and then they found that these now naked coral polyps still continued to thrive, mm-hmm. in fact, doubling in size. Really? And then when they removed the CO2, they found that the corals now were able to reproduce the calcium carbonate shell.
0: Sort of so- like carbonic acupuncture. <laughs> Sounds like that, huh? Okay, so we have nothing to worry about then.
1: <laughs> you know, some critics, obviously, they say... Sure, of course, they recovered in the lab, that's a very controlled environment, but... Right, yeah,
0: yeah. we've got to see the big picture and see what happens in the real world, right? Right, I
1: mean, obviously in the real world there's predators, they could just eat the coral when they're naked, so yeah. hence the reason for the protective. But it still suggests that they have a mechanism for surviving such hardship. Right. Life.
0: It's like turtles without shells, right? <laughs> It'll go back.
1: Anyway, very fascinating work, it was published in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Jake Page will join us to discuss female anthropology. So stay tuned. the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, our view of prehistory is often shaped by textbook images of males hunting and gathering, while women are placed in the background, if mentioned at all. But recent archaeological findings are suggesting that the prehistoric roles of women are incredibly profound. Joins today on the Berkeley Grok Science Show to discuss this issue is Mr. Jake Page. Mr. Page is a former editor of Natural History Magazine and former editor of Smithsonian Magazine. He is the author of several books on American Indian affairs and natural sciences. His new book, The Invisible Sex, co-authored with J.M. Adovasio and Olga Sofer, explores the role of women in prehistoric society. Mr. Page, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
2: You're very welcome. Glad to be here.
1: Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and it's certainly a very fascinating book. And uh, I'm curious, a lot of archaeological findings that you mentioned in the book uh, suffers from some bias, mainly the fact that it's been predominantly males who've investigated it, and also the fact that a lot of the artifacts that have recovered have been largely the ones that are impermeant to uh, degradation. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this.
2: Well, it, historically, it's been mostly males who have been archaeologists. This is, this is changing now quite rapidly, as a matter of fact. But up until about 20 years ago, there were virtually no women, few women involved. And also, there's a, there's a bias in the archaeological record in that the stuff that uh, you usually associate with men, like arrowheads, big choppers and stuff like that, that are made of stone, tend to last in the ground, whereas basketry and and weaving and things like that, it's soft technology, as it were, are simply not going to survive very well unless they're in an anaerobic swamp or whether they're in a very dry cave like in the American Southwest. So most people have found only those implements that they would ascribe to male use. Not that women shouldn't be making arrows, but they probably did. So there's been a bias built in, kind of, and, you, and you've come up with the notion uh, that's only recently been challenged of, you know, man, the mighty hunter, the guys going out with their spear points, killing mastodons and, you know, mammoths. Well, that doesn't really sound logical either because uh, these things, these animals stand about 14 feet at the shoulder. An annoyed elephant is one of the most dangerous creatures on Earth, and I don't imagine these guys would really have really done very well running up with their wooden sticks trying to dispatch them. I think most of the great hunter stuff was basically an accident when they'd find one of these animals stuck in the mud somewhere and kill it or come up and, and butcher it after it had died. So that's kind of the bias. I don't think it was particularly deliberate. It was just one of those accidents of the time.
1: So what are the more recent findings that are changing the view?
2: Well, one of, one of the most uh, wonderful things that the two other authors of this book, James Atavazio and and Olga Soffer working together in what's now uh, Czechoslovakia found a village that was 26,000 years ago uh, that was active and in it they found weaving that was just as fine as a Brooks Brothers shirt. The assumption is that women were doing the weaving. It suggests also that women were kind of big shots in those days. They'd become gendered as it were and they were probably considered quite magical people because of of their talent. The other thing is you've probably heard of those little figurines of little fat ladies that you seem to be naked and they're only a few inches tall or whatever, but they're little amulet But everybody has always thought of them as these naked women. But in fact, most of them are clothed to some degree or another. And the Venus of Willendorf, which is the most famous of them, and I guess the fattest, they thought, well, maybe she had some hair showing on her her head, coiled around her head. But it turns out that that is a a, a woven cap. And it is the carving, even though the thing is only about four inches tall, the carving of the hat is so precise that you could use it as an instruction manual for how to weave a hat like that. So those are some of the things that have changed our way of looking at things. There's also recognition now that becoming erect—that maybe seven million years ago or, or more, probably actually born like 12 million years ago—some apes started walking around on the ground on two feet, sort of wobbling around. And more and more, the, the, some of them got better at it. But one of the things that happened uh, in the line that, that became humans was that in order, in order to walk well or to run, you have to have a very narrow pelvis, or otherwise your, your legs are so wide that you waddle. So in order to get a narrow pelvis through which a baby with a fairly large head has got to go it turns the head around it turns the whole baby around 180 degrees on its way to being born and this necessitates a little help when a woman is having a baby whereas with an ape the baby just comes right right through like it's you know facing forward well now the human baby comes out backwards. And if you reach around and try and pull it out, you probably snap its neck. So midwifery became one of the most, the first, probably the first profession. Women would probably make birth a kind of a social affair. And this may have happened a long, long, long time ago.
1: Previously on the program, we had another author uh, named Leonard Schlane who argues that uh, this change to erectness also led to the beginning of the concept of time.
2: That's perfectly possible. It's, it's pretty speculative, but a lot of stuff that's millions of years old is pretty speculative, too. But I've, I've heard of that, but I'm not totally familiar with it.
1: You mentioned in your book that uh, women are perhaps very responsible for the development of language.
2: Right. And there's several reasons to think that. One is that uh, even today, a human female's brain is much more given over to language and social such as you know recognizing expressions and emotional states whereas men are much better at spatial relations so this sort of evens out as as people get older i guess but the other reason to think that this might be the case is is that there is all kinds of arrangements that humans have made in society but the unit the fundamental basic unit that is always the same is a mother and a child and you can imagine that if the woman was needing to forage to find food for herself and, and maybe other children that she might have with her. She would from time to time have to put the baby down on the ground or someplace while she reached around to try and catch fruit off of trees or whatever. And babies don't like to be put down like that. They want to be with their mother. So one thought is that these mothers would have developed a kind of a probably a sing-song little proto-language that uh, one archaeologist calls motherese, which would just reassure the baby that it hadn't been abandoned and that this could develop into a kind of rudimentary language language, which would be understood by both male and female children and used by the mothers, but not necessarily so much by the men, because they don't need it. They don't need to teach by language how to make a spear. You you, you do that by imitation, for example. So most archaeologists now who think about language and its origins suggest that it probably came about in order to manage increasingly complicated social situations, like when you've all of a sudden the lifespan gets longer and you have grandparents in a, in a family unit, a baby, a youth, a teenager, a parent, and a grandparent are all going to have different requirements in a sense. And so managing it gets more and more complicated and language would have been the thing that would have helped it. that it was probably women that did that. And anyway, you know, women, you know, as soon as something happens, women start talking about it all the time. Whereas men, you know, never ask for directions because they're spatially competent. Of course, they get lost, but a different matter.
1: You, you do mention that the increase in extended families and of course longevity and now the appearance of grandmothers argue leads to more creative revolution now occurring in uh, prehistoric societies.
2: Well, well, it seems to have been. Uh, you know, there's no denying that men were creative, and, and for all we know, they, it was only men who did those great cave paintings that everybody loves so much. On the other hand, it could have been women. There's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's very mysterious because there is either no evidence or we haven't found it yet in the ground. So again, a, a good deal of this is sort of speculation based on certain kinds of biological logic and, and, and other things, social logic. But yeah, there was a, a fairly sudden, really tremendous creative explosion. About 30 Five to 40,000 years ago in Europe and Euro- Europe and Asia, and I think it was a little later in uh, the Far East in China and so forth. But yeah, it all seemed to have come together all at once, and there's lots of, this, again, there's lots of theories as to how that might have happened. Genetic change, people may have had a whole lot of different talents, but in their brain they were sort of separate, and they might have all come together at some point as the brain rewired itself.
1: I see. I see. One of the other interesting speculations is that women were very responsible for the development of an agricultural society, which some might think would be predominantly a male endeavor.
2: Yeah. They, well, there seems to be pretty good evidence of that. For example, in, in southern Arizona, there was a society that was changing from being hunters and gatherers to being agriculturalists, and so they have a whole they have a whole sequence of skeletal remains of people who were doing this over centuries, and you can tell from looking at their femur whether they were actively running around or whether they are doing a lot of stoop labor. And it was the females, femurs, that showed that they were doing the stoop labor. So it was almost absolutely certain that it was women who were doing agricultural stuff while the men were still out running around hunting. And this seems to be the case over in, in the Middle East where agriculture first got started. And so there's lo- there's lots of evidence that, that it was women who were doing what you might call horticulture sort of, a relaxed gardening of certain plants that would become domesticated, like corn and, and stuff. So it was women's work. Eventually it would get taken over by men, When particularly uh, when you had plowing to be done and huge domestic animals, oxen and stuff like that, you know, need to be managed physically. And that, and that So that's probably when men took over agricultural, a lot of agricultural stuff.
1: Well, how did the shift then occur from sort of a dominant role of women to, is there a sociological reason for that?
2: well I, I think there was a you know the tendency to exploit women, for example, the weavers in you know, in the Inca Empire were all women, but, but they've discovered that pretty quickly after they got really good at it to be some guy in there who herd them into a one place and make them all weave whatever you know he wanted them to weave. I'm not sure exactly why that shift occurred, and it's it didn't occur at the same place i mean at the same time everywhere. And it isn't totally uniform. I mean, it's, it's there there are in some ways places where the, where it is very patriarchal, and there, particularly in, in uh, nowadays in in uh, Muslim countries. Whereas in in, in Europe and, and in the United States, it's just shifting back. Toward the kind of equality. And there are, in most hunting and gathering societies, there's always been very, uh, equality of the sexes has always been fairly pronounced in most hunt, hunting and gathering societies. I know, for example, among American Indians, it's typically been that way in most agricultural situations with the American Indians the women own the fields and they own the food that comes out of the fields. It's just the men have to go out and do the work nowadays. But the women have very powerful roles and exert a tremendous amount of influence in these hunting and gathering societies. We didn't really get into the whole agricultural revolution or evolution that thoroughly. That's basically part of classical archaeology in most cases as to what happened with the societies and civilizations. We sort of end before civilization in our book.
1: What are the future directions now for investigating these issues in archaeology and what uh, is maybe the take-home message for how we view prehistory at this point?
2: Well, I think uh, with with a lot of women becoming archaeologists. In fact, I think there are more women are graduating as archaeologists than men are now. And and there's a lot more field work to be done. There's a lot of the world to be scoured. A lot of the world has not really been looked at that precisely archaeologically, but vast stretches of Asia, for example, which should be very formative. And as they find more stuff, I mean, you know, they, they keep finding things, like they found those little tiny people in uh, Indonesia uh, uh, that that uh, lived up until about 12,000 years ago. They're little midgets, but humans, and all of them little tiny people. So these kinds of discoveries are being made all the time, and, and as people get better at looking for the artifacts of things like weaving and, and basketry, and get more talented at pulling them out of the ground around without ruining them, uh, you're going to find a lot more uh, women's presence in the archaeological record. And also you'll find more of the male presence. There's a lot of things we don't know about both genders in the past.
1: Well, it is certainly very fascinating. It does look like there's a lot left to be discovered. Uh, Mr. Page, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. You're very welcome. And you were just listening to Mr. Jake Page discussing recent anthropological findings. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, so stay tuned. and we're ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. That's right, it's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, male or female? So, for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were discovered in the future by an archaeologist, would they be described more to a male or female inventor? Mr. Page, ready to play a game. Alright. Alright, item number one is the iPod. Oh, the
2: iPod. I would think it might be considered something used by women because of its very smallness, its size. I would say it's it's really pretty neuter, and I would suspect that an archaeologist in the future would look at an iPod and say, "Well, this was." They might not understand what it was for, but they would they would not be able to assign it a gender.
1: Uh, okay, uh, number two is Texas Hold'em poker.
2: <laughs> I don't know how an archaeologist would have discovered that. <laughs> But I think I think because it's gambling and and traditionally uh, men have been the gamblers. I know, in the, for example, in the Hop- Hopi Indians, the, there are stories of the, where the men went out and did all the gambling and didn't take care of uh, the fields, and so the women pulled a lissajous on them, and that is a constant theme in in Indian uh, history. So I suspect they'd think that the Texas Hold'em uh, poker was was male.
1: Um, all right, uh, number three is the cell phone.
2: Well, if they figured out what it was for, they were able to figure out what it was for, They and, and they were still operating basically on the sort of biological sense that we have now of who talks most, they would assume that it's female, or probably mainly female.
1: Okay, uh, number four is the gas-powered automobile.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be considered uh, gender-free.
1: Okay. okay, and number five is the Republican Party. <laughs>
2: Well, let's see. It depends on how far in the future that is, of course, right now. But but the Republican Party is generally thought of as the Daddy Party, as opposed to the Democrats, who are the Mommy Party. So I guess they would say the Republican Party is male.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, Mr. Page, I do want to thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show, and, of course, stick around and playing our game.
2: Yes, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: And I'm the little train that could. My papa gave me a steam engine and that's how I run. But out there, there are many types of engine. For example, the reciprocating engine. It never gives back to me though, never reciprocates. But if you know what it is, or think you know what it is, email us at groks at heartmail dot com. You won't want anything, but you might get something back. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.